Hi, my name is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast of the New Testament. I'll be using as the text the King James Version, along with the Joseph Smith Translation. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll also be using quotes from general authorities of the Church, the Apostles and Prophets, and BYU professors and others, and uh, every word out of the Scriptures themselves. So if you're ready for a really detailed analysis of the New Testament, you've come to the right place. Welcome. Hi there, welcome back. This will be from Matthew chapter 22. We're still on Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, Verse 1, And Jesus answered the people again and spake unto them in parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king who made a marriage for his son. So this is Heavenly Father making the marriage for Jesus. And when the marriage was ready, he sent forth his servants, the prophets, to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. The place of the wedding feast is the kingdom of heaven. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them that are bidden, those to whom the gospel is taken, the brides, Behold, I have prepared my oxen, and my fatlings have been killed, and my dinner is ready, and all things are prepared. Come unto the marriage. This is not a request, but a command. But they might light. But they made light of it. The servants and went their way. They, I'm sorry. They made. But they made light of the servants and went their ways. One to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard that his servants were dead, he was wroth and he sent forth his armies, the armies of Rome, and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. This happens in 70 A.D. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they who were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests, so the Gentiles are gathered in. Elder McConkie said, Deity is the king, Jesus is the son, and those first invited to the marriage of the Lamb, those invited to come unto Christ and feast upon the good word of God, are the chosen and favored hosts of ancient Israel, to whom the saving truths were offered in days of old. The servants who heaped the banquet tables high with heavenly manna were Moses and Isaiah and all the prophets. Verse 11, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man who had not on a wedding garment, in other words, white robes, uh, that he was not covered by the atonement or covenants. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? The wedding garment represents personal preparedness for the Lord's coming. And he was speechless. That is, he had been given the opportunity to receive the garment, but did not take it. The man had trusted in his own clothes and not those of the king that would have been provided. He had wanted to be part of the kingdom, but on his own terms and not on the terms of the king. He had spurned the ritual garments and the righteousness associated with it. Elder McCon- uh, Joseph Fielding McConkie said, Jesus reminded his listeners that the children of the covenant must be found wearing the garments of purity and holiness, garments made white through the blood of the Lamb. Verse 13, Then said the king unto the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take and cast him away into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Salvation is a personal matter. It comes to individuals, not congregations. Church membership alone does not save. Obedience after baptism is required. Each person called to the marriage feast will be examined separately, and of of the many called to partake of the bounties of the gospel, few only will wear the robes of righteousness, which must clothe every citizen in the celestial heaven. Verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. Wherefore, all do not have on the wedding garment. Joseph Fielding Smith said, Now who are those who are called? I take it that every man who is ordained to an office in the priesthood has been called. The Lord is willing that any man should serve him. 
Elder Bednar said, To be or to become chosen is not an exclusive status conferred upon us. Rather, you and I ultimately determine if we are chosen. Please now note the use of the word chosen in the following verses from the Doctrine and Covenants. Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men. I believe the implication of these verses is quite straightforward. God does not have a list of favorites to which we must hope our names will someday be added. He does not limit the chosen to a restricted few. Rather, it is our hearts and our aspirations and our obedience which definitely, or which definitively determine whether we are counted as one of God's chosen. Enoch was instructed by the Lord on this very point of doctrine. Please note the use of the word choose in these verses. Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands, and I gave unto them their knowledge in the day I created them, and in the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. And unto thy brethren have I said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me their father. As we learn in these scriptures, the fundamental purposes for the gift of agency were to love one another and to choose God. Thus we become God's chosen and invite his tender mercies as we use our agency to choose God. One of the most well-known and frequently cited passages of scripture is found in Moses 139. This verse clearly and concisely describes the work of the eternal Father. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. A companion scripture found in the Doctrine and Covenants describes with equal clarity and conciseness, our primary work as the sons and daughters of the Eternal Father. Interestingly, this verse does not seem to be as well known as is, and is not quoted with great frequency. Behold, this is your work to keep my commandments, yea, with all your might, mind, and strength. That's in Doctrine and Covenants section 11, verse 20. Thus the Father's work is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. Our work is to keep his commandments with all our might, mind, and strength, and we thereby become chosen. And through the Holy Ghost, receive and recognize the tender mercies of the Lord in our daily lives. So good counsel there that we are the ones that do the choosing. Verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Good luck with that. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any. For thou regardest not the person of men. I think they're being a little sarcastic here. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? If Jesus answered yes, they could accuse him of supporting the hated Roman government. If he said no, they could accuse him of rebellion against the government. So this is a trap for them. Not going to work out very well. Verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Ye hypocrites, why tempt ye me? Or why are ye testing me? Verse 19, show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose image is this and superscription? Elder Talmadge said, Every human soul is stamped with the image and superscription of God. Verse 21, They say unto him, Caesar's. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. In other words, keep the laws of the land. How great the danger was which threatened Jesus may be gathered from this, that despite his, clever, his clear answer, the charge that he perverted the nation forbidding to give tribute to Caesar was actually among those brought against him before Pilate. That's by Edersheim. Verse 22, And when they had heard him say these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. They're probably shaking their head going, we, can't, we just can't trap him. And Eldon Tanner has reminded us, there is no reason or justification for men to disregard or break the law or try to take it into their own hands. Christ gave us the great example of a law-abiding citizen when the Pharisees trying to entangle him, as the scripture says, 
asked him if it were lawful to give tribute money unto Caesar. After asking whose inscription was on the tribute money and their acknowledgement that it was Caesar's, he said, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. It is the duty of citizens of any country to remember that they have individual responsibilities and that they must operate within the law of the country in which they have chosen to live. Down to verse 23 then, and the same day came the Sadducees to him who say that there is no resurrection and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. It is difficult to understand why they would ask such a foolish question, even in ridicule, for every informed person already knew the answer. The matter had been fully analyzed and debated in the rabbinical schools. The Pharisees had already settled the question in a very obvious way, and quite to their own satisfaction by saying that she should, in the resurrection, be the wife of the first husband. From our vantage point, we say she would have been the wife of the one to whom she was married for time and for all eternity. That's by Elder McConkie. But the question is really about the resurrection. And verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. The first man was sealed to his wife, the other husbands would not be. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but, as the, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Joseph Smith's revelation on marriage teaches that if we are not married before the resurrection, we won't be married after it either. Doctrine and Covenant section 132 talks about celestial marriage continues in the resurrection only if based on an eternal sealing by priesthood authority either on earth or by vicarious work for those individuals in the spirit world. Although there are different times when individuals are resurrected, their sealings must be done before they are resurrected to give them that married relationship afterward, and that's by Richard Anderson. Elder Talmadge said, In the resurrection there will be no marrying nor giving in marriage, for all questions of marital status must be settled before that time, under the authority of the holy priesthood, which holds the power to seal in marriage for both time and eternity. Since a man must be sealed to a wife prior to his resurrection, Jesus must have been sealed to someone prior to his death. And then in, in Mark, uh, it says, For when they shall rise from the dead, neither they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God who are in heaven. Jesus explained further that when the time of resurrection comes, they who have chosen not to accept and abide by the law of eternal marriage, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but remain separate and single forever as ministering angels in heaven, that is, in God's celestial kingdom. Those who accept and abide by the celestial law of marriage, including those who would have faithfully kept the eternal law if they had had opportunity in life to do so, and become exalted, will be able to marry and be given in marriage in, the, in that eternal world. Elder McConkie emphasized that there is no revelation, either ancient or modern, which says neither is, that there is neither marrying nor given in marriage in heaven itself for righteous people. And that's in verse by verse. Back to, verse, back to Matthew, verse 31, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you of God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard him, they were astonished at his doctrine. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, tempting him, asked and say, uh, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? 
The Jews have 613 commandments, so that's why the question's being asked. Elder Dallin Oaks has taught the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts. What we have done, it is an acknowledgment of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. Verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may, may, one day be, one, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of, those, of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendship, all loves, all play, all politics. They are, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But, is, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal, everlasting splendors. Your neighbor is the holiest thing presented to your senses. And that's by C.S. Lewis. In Mark it says, And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he but him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Back to Matthew verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, or he said unto them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord? saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? The Messiah would be through David, through his mother, but the Son of God through his father. David acknowledged that the Messiah through him would be the Son of God. And then verse 46, And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst or dare any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They dared not ask him any more questions. Instead, they laid plans to have him killed. So that's the end of the chapter, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye.